Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit your-cathedral.org. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for the gift of being together this morning. We do not take it lightly. Thank you that you've gathered us from all across this city and this region to hear your word proclaimed, to pray, to sing, to be welcomed at your table. We pray now that as we open up your scriptures that we would see Jesus crucified, risen, ascended, and one day to come again. And in seeing him, may we be transformed, may we be purified, even as he is pure. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning again. Great to see you all. So a few weeks back, as I was putting my son to bed, um, I found myself uh, patting him on the leg. And as I did that, I said this obscure phrase. I said, where's the beef, Judah? And then I stopped. And it was not because I had a sudden recall of this obscure uh, marketing campaign from the 80s that had come to my mind. It was instead because I had had the realization that my dad did that exact same thing to me all the time growing up. And it's been a part of a culmination of realizing that over the past years and maybe even decade, I've become my father. It's happened gradually and then all at once, it seems, from my looks to some of my mannerisms, but most acutely in my dry, sarcastic dad jokes. It's inescapable. I've become my dad. And I'm confident that either this is happening to you in some way or it will happen. So it's something to look forward to with fear and trembling. And it's weird, you find yourself living your life and doing your thing, and all of a sudden you say something like, I guess they'll let anyone in this place. Or they don't make them like they used to. Or you're at dinner and the waiter brings the check and you do that thing where you're like, ooh, pretend you forgot your wallet and expect your kids to pay for it. You realize that you become your dad or your mom or maybe your grandparent or maybe something like a sibling. Because like it or not, we all resemble our families. We come to resemble them in one way or another. In our New Testament uh, lesson that we just heard read, St. John talks about this idea of family resemblance. And he asks this question, how can we know that we are children of God? And so I invite you to open your pew Bibles, or if you brought your own Bible, turn to 1 John chapter uh, 2 on page 1022. It's at the very, very back of the book. Almost to the end. Last week, uh, Pete also preached from 1 John and gave us, I think, a good uh, framework for understanding this book. And he talked about uh, what it means to be Easter people. And and, and more more clearly, what happens whenever we don't live as if we were Easter people. And we don't live into that truth. And he reminded us that uh, St. John is preaching and writing to churches that are in Ephesus... And we think that this is probably a, 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 either a sermon or a collection of sayings or sermons that he preached that were then circulated to many churches in the region. And it's clear, as Pete talked about last week, clear from this letter that there is a significant threat 
some kind of heresy, some kind of wayward teaching that is spreading among this church that disparages the physical and the earthly, that disparages bodies and humans and neighbors and brothers and sisters in favor of some kind of spiritual secret knowledge. In our text this morning, John continues with some of those themes, but he looks specifically at what I want to say is a spiritual paternity test. John is asking, who is your father? And we know this because the bookends of the text that you just heard read, and you may have caught it as you were listening to it, but he, in verse 29, he says this, everyone who does right or righteousness is born of him, born of God. And then in verse 10, at the end of the text, it says, all who do not do right are not from God. So we're going to wrestle with that question this morning. What does it mean for God to be our father? What do God's children look like? Who do they resemble? And we're going to look at it, um, I generally like to, to see the flow of the text and go from kind of verse to verse, from start to finish. But this morning we're going to go from back to front, and I think you'll see why once we get to the end. And so in the last section that we just heard read from verse 4 to verse 10, John contrasts the essence of these two resemblances. And he's very black and white. If you read through the entire book, which you can do in probably like 12 minutes, I encourage you to do it today, later, or this week at some point. But he contrasts these two things in very black and white terms. He says that there is, on one hand, those who sin or practice sinning, and their resemblance is of their father, the devil. Pretty blunt. And then on the other side, there are those who practice righteousness, who do righteous, and they look like their father, God, in heaven. And so the first section, four through six, John uh, addresses this notion of those who practice sin. And he says things like this, everyone who commits Sin makes a practice of sinning, practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. No one who abides in him sins, and those who have sinned have not seen him nor known him. Everyone who commits sins is a child of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And so those are pretty stark words, right? We might even tremble as we listen to them. We'll talk about that in a second. And then verses 7 through 9, he talks about righteousness, what it means to practice righteousness. And he says things like this, children, let no one deceive you. Everyone who does right is righteous as he, meaning God, is righteous. Those born of God cannot sin because they are born of God. And then again in verse 10, he summarizes these two poles, these two families. The children of God and the children of the devil are revealed in this way. All who do not do what is right are not from God. Those who do not love their brothers, nor are those who do not love their brothers and their sisters. So what do we make of this? First, we think about this first section, what we want to hear is a warning about the seriousness of sin. In our current moment, we have had a tendency, I think, in our culture, the zeitgeist is that there really is no such thing as sin, right? We don't have any categories of sin. We only have things like uh, consent or personal harm. If you harm a person, that is considered bad. That is sinful in our culture. But we don't have categories like we inherit from this Christian story. And for many of us, we like to belittle those. And and as much as we don't want to admit this, that has a tendency to creep into the church. The zeitgeist, the culture has a tendency to creep in. And we can take that opinion of sin. Like, well, that, you know, you say that's sin. That may just, that's like just your opinion, man. And so John uses this idea of sin, which for the Greeks would have understood it as missing the mark. You've probably heard preachers talk about that very often. That word means just to miss the mark. And I think in some ways that's helpful, but in other ways it feels like it lets us off the hook. 
To miss the mark feels like an oops. I did it again, right? I made a mistake. I didn't do what I hoped I would do. I was less than perfect. But John, coming from his Jewish worldview, does not let them off the hook that easy. He says that sin is lawlessness, which for his mind, he knew that God had given his people the Torah, the law, the Ten Commandments. God had very specific expectations for how his people were to live. And so to sin, to miss the mark in a Greek understanding, is the same as lawlessness. Breaking God's law. It's not just an oops. It is rebellion against God's rule. It's not just a mistake. It is secession from God's kingdom. It's not just an oops. It is defiance. It's antagonistic. And so, for us this morning, as much as I don't want to preach this, we must look at our lives and reflect and ask the question, if, if we have ongoing, habitual willful sin in our lives without repentance and without a desire to change, we should probably question. We should interrogate our hearts. And we should probably tremble. So what does God's children, what do God's children look like? They resemble their father in that they do not sin. We'll unpack that more in just a second. The second section of this, what we just heard, verses uh, 7 through 10, he looks at not just the negative, not the warning for sin, but what does it mean to practice righteousness? And when we think about this word righteous, I think oftentimes there are a lot of words in church that are like this, but you hear them so much that they kind of become fuzzy. They lose their meaning. They can mean so many things that they really mean nothing. So what does this word mean? It means high standards of rectitude. It means uprightness. It means just or justice. It means fair scales and balances. And throughout the scriptures, it's used uh, mostly not to describe people, but to describe God. God is the just one. God is the righteous one. God is the holy one. And so when we think about that, that again makes sense to us, right? Because we think of God as being one who is high and holy, completely other from us, transcendent, separate, exacting. So there is clearly a vertical dimension to what John is meaning here with righteousness. But also, and this is the thing that we oftentimes forget, is that this word is also translated as justice oftentimes. It's God's high moral standard, but it's also that executed on behalf of this world, of the creatures of this world, of people. And in particular, his care for the poor, for the marginalized. So there's vertical, but then there's also horizontal understandings of this word righteous. Amy Sherman, in, um, in a great book, talks about this word meaning rescue, equity, and restoration. That's what it means. It means God's world set right, a righteous world, a righteous people enacting, giving foretaste of God's coming kingdom. And we oftentimes have, want to separate these two dimensions, the vertical and the horizontal, right? We want to oftentimes, especially in the evangelical world, think about it in terms of just personal piety, we're righteous. We're upright. You know, we don't, we don't lie or cheat or go with people who do. What's that saying? We forget sometimes that it also must include the horizontal aspect. And that's why, and Pete addressed this last week, but John again and again connects love of God with love of sibling, love of neighbor. You cannot separate them. You cannot say, I love God and hate your brother or your sister. You cannot say you love God and then fail to enact justice in your life. 
Righteousness here is not just the absence of sin, but it is the presence of justice. And so here too, we must ask ourselves, we must examine, question our hearts, and tremble. Does our default behavior as the people of God, the children of God, bring about personal holiness and then the work of love and justice in the world? So that's point two. The children of God resemble their father by practicing righteousness, by setting aside sin, but practicing righteousness. And so if we were to hear this, stand alone, if I just preached that text from four to ten and say, you know what, listen, if you're struggling with sin, John says you're a child of the devil. Sorry, guys. The end. Have a good week. I don't know about you, but I, when I've read passages like this, especially in my younger years, I, I read a, a fair bit of the Bible in, in middle school and high school, and I remember coming to passages like this and just being so afraid, being so ashamed, trembling with insecurity that I was cut off, that I was not a part of God's family because I did not seem to resemble him. But clearly we heard last week in Pete's message that John says anyone who says they have no sin is a liar and the truth is not in them, but then offers hope of confession and forgiveness. And so clearly John is not saying here explicitly that Christians do not sin. But that's why the order and the context of this passage is important, for this passage is not something that should bring us condemnation this morning. Although we should hear it and heed it, it should bring comfort Because what's in view here is not so much the behavior, but the status of the people of God as adopted children. John assumes that those who are ceasing sin and practicing righteousness are doing so only because they've been first made God's children. They've been adopted. John says that Jesus is the one who has come to remove sin. So those who are languishing in sin can have it removed simply by asking. He also says that Jesus is the one who came to destroy the works of the devil. And so if you are struggling with the works of the devil, he has come to destroy that. By his death, he destroyed death and the works of the devil and has adopted us, has welcomed us into his family. And so we should be those who look like our father. Speaking of this glorious... uh, News of adoption, J.I. Packer, the wonderful Anglican theologian, has said this, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater thing. We've been adopted into his family. John would agree with that statement from Dr. Packer. And he exclaims, see what love, in verse 1, the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So we are. We don't do these things in order. We don't do justice and put away sin in order to become God's children. We do it because we are God's children. It's an inevitability. And yet he also recognizes that resembling our Father is not a single event. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a progressive work that will work out throughout our lives. But he never questions our identity. He says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. But what we will be has not been fully revealed. But when he is revealed, we will be like him. Because we will see him as he is. And then he says this amazing line, All who have this hope, who hope that we are children and that we are becoming like our father, purify themselves. That that's the work of the gospel. That's the work of the Christian. Our identity is assured even while we grow in resemblance to our Father.
And the order of this, I cannot say this enough, the order is so important. If you reverse the order, it is so toxic and it leads only to bad things. It only leads to shame and it leads to self-justification. It leads to, it haunts us actually. But if you reverse the order and say, because we are God's children, we can. And of course, this is not just true in our spiritual lives, right? We, um, so much, I feel like, uh, study, psychological studies, childhood development proves this very point, is that if we are uh, performance-based parents or if we experience performance-based parenting where our, our love is uh, conditioned upon our performance, upon our academics, upon our athletics, upon our behavior, then as children grow into young adulthood, college, young adulthood, they constantly struggle. And instead, if they are secure in the love of their family, the love of their parents, despite what happens, despite their performance, as they grow older, they tend to flourish. Because we are safe and secure as children of God, then we can set aside sin and pursue righteousness. Because we are his, we begin to look like him more and more and more. Because we are God's children, we can set aside the things we may have inherited from our earthly families, addiction to substances and pornography, sex, whatever, and we can live as those who set aside sin. Because we are God's children, we can set aside greed and take on generosity, giving of our resources. We can set aside pride and take on humility. We can set aside selfishness and take on selflessness. Because we are God's children, we can work towards justice and righteousness in our personal lives, but also in our communities, caring for the poor, loving our neighbors, fighting things like racism, loving our neighbors and even our enemies. Because we are the children of God. And the thing I grappled with this week, and you may be grappling with it hearing it now, is yes, but how? Those two tensions, right? We are God's children now, but we're still languishing. We're still wrestling. We're still grappling with the reality of life in this world. And John gives us an answer. He doesn't give us maybe the answer that some of us would like, but he gives us an answer. In verse 28, the very beginning of this text, he starts out and says, Now little children abide in him, so that when he is revealed, we may have confidence and not be put to shame before his coming. And so that's what the work is. That's how this is worked deep into our hearts, this reality of us being the children of God. Abide. Some translations say remain or rest or dwell. Dwell in Jesus. Dwell in his loving care for you. And I think it's interesting that this, you know, I would just prefer a checklist of things to do, right? How to become the children of God. Well, you just do X, Y, and Z. But he doesn't give us that. He gives us something more Mysterious. I would want to just optimize. But he gives us something that's slow, that's contemplative, that's something that we're called to steep ourselves in through disciplines. This is why we practice disciplines at the church, because it's how we steep ourselves in the reality of who we are as God's children. It's why we read the scriptures, not just in church, but throughout the week. It's why we give ourselves to prayer and things like the daily office. It's why we... Uh, Participate in the Eucharist here in a moment, in communion, Holy Communion. That is participating. That we, you will pray this prayer that, that he may dwell in us and we in him. Union with Christ enacted in communion. It's why we confess our sins to one another. It's why we share our lives with one another as the people of God. We're further steeping ourselves, immersing ourselves, abiding 
with him and he in us. And I want to think of this oftentimes as a linear process, just as I want to think of it as a checklist. But the more I reflected on it this week, I realized that that is not the case. It's more of a cycle. It's a circle. That the more we abide in him, secure in our identity as the children of God, the more that we cease sinning and practice righteousness, which is, means the more we abide in him, the more that we are firmly established in our adoption as children and the more we practice righteousness. And that is the work of the gospel in our lives. We'll start it now and we'll do it up until the moment when we are with Jesus or he returns. So friends, our invitation today is to do that work, to abide in the reality of our adoption as sons and daughters of the living God. So we may be those who look more and more and more like our father. Little children abide in him. Amen.